0: politically, and religiously, there's this crowd of people walking with Jesus, and Jerusalem is full of pilgrims. There's, uh, it's Passover, so there's probably 40,000, 50,000 extra people in Jerusalem who've all come for this festival. So there's guys walking with Jesus, and there's all these people who he's, this crowd that he's walking into, a lot of anticipation, a lot of excitement, and in the midst of that, he pulls his 12 disciples aside, and he gives them some insight into what's going to happen. That's starting in verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, so again, you kind of imagine that massive throng of people walking up. He pulls the 12 disciples aside, and this is what he says to them. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death. They'll turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So that's the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. He does it in chapter 16, 17, and he does it again. This one's the most specific. He says how he's going to die. He's going to be um, betrayed to the Gentiles, so he, the disciples know he's going to the Roman government. He's going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. He's telling them this is what is about to happen. I think he's also demonstrating something that we talked about last week. Last week we talked about first being last and, Last being first. And that's not just a cute cliche. There's reality there. That's a that's a true statement in the kingdom of God. First will be last. And last will be first. And Jesus is demonstrating what that looks like in his life. In Deuteronomy 21 it says, Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And Jesus is saying, I'm about to be hung on a tree. So everyone is going to assume that I've been cursed. That they're going to put me at the bottom of the list. If you read the crucifixion account, all the religious leaders... They torment, they mock Jesus because he's being crucified. In their mind, that means that God is against you. All of these things that you've been saying, Jesus, about yourself have been, tr- have been false, and all of the things that we've been saying about you have been true. You are a heretic. You are a blasphemer. You are a child of Satan. All of We were right is what they're saying. That, that's the assumption there because Jesus is being crucified. So and there, he's, he's last in everybody's eyes. At that point, Psalm 16 says you won't allow your Holy One, and both of those words are capitalized, to see decay. And what Jesus is saying is I'm going to be crucified. That, that's going to, I'm going to look last. I'm also going to be resurrected, which makes me first. It's, it's just not first the way you're thinking I'm going to be first. He's, he's saying I'm about to demonstrate the reality that I taught you about the other day when I was telling you this parable. We looked at it last week. First will be last, last will be first. And then here's the response. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons comes to Jesus with their sons. So that's James and John, who were two of Jesus' inner circle of three. So this is his closest friends. Kneeling down, they ask a favor of him. What do you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So I want you to think, you picture that. These are men. And they're bringing their mama to Jesus to say, will you give my boys these positions of honor and authority and all of that? You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. He said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. So again, massive drop from James and John here, completely misunderstand the moment and what's going on. Jesus has just said, I'm, I'm about to die this horrific death. One of y'all is good. Some I'm going to be betrayed, which that implies somebody who's close to me is going to stab me in the back. I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, and I'm going to be crucified. He's just spent all this time lifting up little children, saying, remember, you got to be like a child. Don't be like the rich young ruler. Be like these little kids. Recognize your need and your dependence. Remember the first or last and the last or first. And the guys that get hired at 6 in the morning, the guys that get hired at 5 in the afternoon. We looked at that parable last week. and all of He's just done all of that. And what comes out of all of that is two of the people who are, closest, who are closer to him than anyone else in the world send their mother on their behalf to ask him if they can have the best seats at the table. This huge disconnect. They don't understand. They don't get it at all. And Jesus says, "Can you drink the cup?" That means, "Can you suffer when I'm about to suffer?" And they're like, "Absolutely, we can." No, you no. Within five days, they're going to be running away like a bunch of sissies when Jesus gets arrested. They don't have. They flippantly. He's just said, listed the things that are going to happen to him: betrayed, mocked, flogged, crucified. Can y'all get, can, are y'all fine with that? And they're like, oh, yeah, we can handle that. You just give us the best seats at the table. Complete disconnect. Jesus says it's not even mine to give. And then we'll look at his further response later. I was thinking about that. Kind of, this is a tangent, so I'm, I'm warning you. Um, don't try to follow. This is, I was thinking about this. And what does this look like for us? Peter or James and John had been with Jesus for three years. They'd heard a lot. They'd seen a lot. They'd done a lot. I don't know what they understood. It's apparent from this they didn't understand completely what Jesus was trying, or the way Jesus was trying to accomplish what Jesus was trying to accomplish. And it's easy for me to look at them and say, y'all are idiots. How do you, how do you not get it? How much more plain can he be? But I've also read the end of the story. And so I know kind of where this thing is going, and so it's easy for me to read back into that. Maybe the same thing is true for you. And I was wondering for me and for y'all, are there, are we, are we them? Like, when are we them? When, if somebody was reading your story, would they be like, "You dropped. It. How did you not see that that was coming? How how did you miss that? How much more plain would God need to be in order for you to get what He was doing?" Your response. Could not have been more incongruous with what Jesus was doing if you tried. I don't know I was thinking about that um, that idea of what am I missing? What do I miss? What do we miss? There's an article in The New York Times in 2009, and it said that the average American consumes 34 gigs of content a day, and then an extra and then plus 100,000 words. So 34 gigs of content. You don't even get how big that is. That's that's a 1 gig is a movie or 200 songs on your iPod or 10 yards of books. That's how much a gig is. You consume 34 of those every day really without even trying. This just breaks down where it's all coming from and how we're gathering that. We have lots we we swim in this ocean of information every day, all of it. We don't even, we don't have to try, it's just where we live, where all of this content, all of these words, all of these images are coming at us, and we we consume all of them. And in the midst of that, I'm thinking about what Bo shared earlier, this idea that God has created us to be his representatives here on earth. When he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he was saying, these are my, these folks represent me. When kings uh, conquered territory, they would place a statue in that conquered territory to remind everybody who was in charge. Adam and Eve are like those statues. Let's remind all of creation who's in charge because they're accurate representations of him at that point. They were fully able to glorify him. And so placing them in the garden was God's way of saying, this is my space. I run this. And the same thing is true for us. He plants us wherever he has planted us. And he's saying, this is my space. This is my turf. I own this. And each of us, as we are representing him, are pointing to that reality. Psalm 148, you should read it. Interesting. It talks about sun and moon and stars praising God. We Kind of like that song that we sang. I don't know if that was inspired by Psalm 148 or not. And it talks about insects and birds and fish and cows praising the Lord. And in my mind, I'm going, how does a cow praise God? Like, what does it do? How does the sun praise God? We think, well, you've got to raise your hand. The sun doesn't have arms. So like, what do you do if you're those things? How do you praise the Lord? I think the way those things glorify God or praise God is by being what they are. A cow praises God by being a cow. Where a cow's going to fall down on the job is if a cow tries to act like a sheep. That's not how God designed it. He designed it to be a cow. And he designed the sun to be the sun. And if the sun tries to be the moon, that's when bad things happen. And if the sun will content itself with being the sun, then it brings glory to the Lord. And I think about that with us. And how does Brian Strack glorify God? It's by being Brian Strack. It's not by trying to be Dave Hansen. That's when he's going to get messed up. As wonderful as Dave may be, if he's looking across and saying, I've got to be that, then he's gone off track. It's like a cow, sorry, trying to be a sheep, sorry. That's where the metaphor breaks down. So, you can't do that. And I think about 34 gigs of data every day and 100,000 words every day and how how much of any of that helps any of us be who God has called us to be and created in and, and to do what he's created us to do. Some of it's just noise and it's fine. Some of it's just is entertainment and it's fine. Some of it's harmful. It pulls us in the wrong direction. It whispers over here to the cows and says you need to bark or you need to neigh or you need to gallop. And we're going and we try to do that. And we wind up becoming less of who God created us to be, not more. I'm not a big social media guy so this is a bit of an axe and if you are it's okay I'm not criticizing it I am criticizing it I'm not saying it's <laughs> awful there's there can be some redemptive value there but how much of that that's part of that content that you're taking in how much of that encourages you to be who the Lord wants you to be and how much of it makes you feel bad about who you are how many of the things that you read whether that's a blog or a post or a tweet or whatever how much of that stuff causes you to start looking around saying, I wish I was a sheep and I'm a cow? How much of that stuff encourages you forward to be the man or the woman that God's called you to be? Grab on, like, like, bookmark that. Stay with those things. And how much of it creates discontent within you in a bad way? How much of it causes you to start looking around? Instead of looking forward, it causes you to start doing this and comparing yourself in an unhealthy way. With others, that might—that's not the intention of the people posting it, maybe, but that's what happens when we read it. Not helpful. So, my encouragement to you: recognize you've been created in the image of God, and you've been placed somewhere. And the best thing you can do is, in that place where He has placed you, be fully who He's called you to be. Live fully as Brian Strack at Brassfield and Gory, and down here off of Freyer or. Do that. Be that guy. And that brings the most praise and honor to the Lord and allows those of us who are connected to you to see a facet of his character that we can't see by Dave being Dave. He's infinite and we're finite, so we we just get a sliver. That's what we reflect. And as all of us reflect our slivers, then people can begin to see the fullness of who he is. For us, I wonder sometimes, James and John, they had a lot of information. They didn't understand what they had. They, didn't, they, could, they couldn't find the gold in the midst of everything. And same thing is true for us. We've got to find the gold in the middle of 34 gigabytes. You've got to find the things that are alive in the, middle of, in the midst of 34 gigabytes. And you've got to grab onto that and not just grab onto it. Wisdom is not just knowing things. It's knowing what to do with the things that you know. It's living well. Wisdom is much more about how you live and much less about what you know. You can be the wisest person in the world and fail the test. And you can ace the test. In in Bible land, you can be a fool. Wisdom is about incorporating truth into the way that we live. And that's what we want. We don't just want to know, hey, this is the gold, this is the life. We want to be able to incorporate that into the way that we're living. That's what it looks like to be wise in a, in a biblical sense. So my encouragement to you, and then we'll get back on track. You're created in the image of God, and he's put you somewhere, and so act like it. And if there are things that, that spur you on in that, then you continue to cultivate those things. And if there's things that pull you away from that, that cause you to try to be a cow when you're a sheep, that are constantly pushing you back, where you're going, I'm not, I don't get it. Then I would say, cut those things out for sure. They're not helpful to you. When the ten heard about this request, they were indignant, of course they were indignant, with the two brothers. Jesus called them together. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials Exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, real quick, verse 28 is probably the clearest presentation of the gospel in all of the Bible. That's it. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment to set us free for many, for any who will accept him. That, you want to know what the gospel is on a note card, that's it. That's your bumper sticker. The Son of Man, Jesus, came to give his life as a ransom for any who will accept that payment. What I'm looking at with this is, he's, again, he's, so he's got these guys who are, uh, these two disciples who are part of his inner core, and they're trying to exploit the fact that they're in the inner core in order to get what they want. And they use their mom also. They're using sympathy. They're using their relationship, their position, their history. They're using all of these things. They're using their firstness to try to get what they want. And Jesus is resetting. Remember, if you want to be great, you've got to get at the back of the line. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. You've got to learn what it is to be a servant. Those of you who are in leadership positions, or if you at some point aspire to be in a leadership position, my encouragement to you. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look for this. Look for the places where Jesus interacts directly with the twelve and study it and, and pull, pull out. What's he doing with them? He teaches them. He guides them. He directs them. He empowers them. He invests in them. He rebukes them. Like, look at the things that he's doing. That's what it looks like to be a leader in the kingdom of God. And anything else is not. He says, you, this is the way... Gentiles, or in our, this is the way pagans lead. You're not going to do this. This is what you need to do. And so for us, as citizens of the kingdom, then we have to choose, even in a secular context, to say, if my primary allegiance is to Jesus, and if my primary citizenship is in his kingdom, then even in a secular context, I have to make a choice to lead the way he said to lead, not the way everybody else says to lead. Very, very difficult. Easy to say in here, very hard to live out. Servant-based leadership. That's been a buzzword for at least 25 years. People who aren't even Christians will say servant-based leadership. This is where it all stems from. But the issue for me with it is, again, at this point it's become a tool for manipulation in a lot of places. I'm going to serve you in order to get you to do what I want you to do. Then I'm not serving you, I'm playing you. But I'm doing it from the perspective of serving you. So maybe it doesn't make sense. You can serve somebody apart from the Spirit of God in you. Notice what Jesus says when he says, this is how you're supposed to lead. He doesn't say foot washing. That's a big deal. John 13. That's our picture when we think servant-based leadership. Notice what Jesus says. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to wash your feet and to give his life it's sacrificial leadership not servant based leadership that's fine serving is better than lording it over sacrificing is better than serving in my understanding here i can serve you and it doesn't cost me a thing it actually might help me get what i want out of you if i'm going to truly emulate jesus i've got to i have to sacrifice for you and that costs me a lot i'm not going to It's not crucifixion, although he does say in John, what is this, true love is this, someone who gives his life for his friend. There's this picture here when Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like for you to lead. It goes all the way to the point, past service, which is good, to sacrifice, which is godly. Paul says this about it in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing, not most things, not some, nothing, absolute word, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you translated that literally, it would say each of you should look not to your own interests. Not not only, but not. Cuts me out of the picture completely. I like that they put only in there. Not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Here's this picture. Being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was first and he became last. He went from, I'm the God of everything that you can see and can't see, to death on a cross and cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Here's the switch. Therefore, God exalted him in the highest place, gave him the name above every name, at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see the shift. He goes from first. He willingly becomes last, and that allows God to elevate him back to first. For us, sometimes, our Western minds say, okay, the way to be first is to be last. Again, the way to get ahead is to serve you. That's manipulation, but with a, it's as close as we can come to a pure heart. If I say I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to get to the front of the line. I'm fine if I get pushed to the back. If I don't, I don't. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna work to get to the front of the line. I'm not gonna go to Jesus and say, Hey, can you get me the best seat at the table? I'm not gonna say I've been with you for a long time. I've sacrificed a lot. I've given up a lot. I've obeyed a lot. I've been faithful a lot. I'm not going to go to him and say, therefore, can you give me something? I'm not going to do that. That's, trying, that's taking advantage of my firstness. I'm not going to do that. If he wants to move me to the front, that's great. There's a parable that says, when you come into somebody's house, don't take the best seat. Because guess what? Somebody more important than you might come in, and you're going to get kicked to the bad seat. And it's going to be embarrassing. I don't, I'm not going to try to elevate myself. I'm not going to try to find the best seat at the table. If he wants to give it to me, that's fine. If he wants me to sit at the worst seat, that's fine. But I'm not going to try to take advantage of my firstness in order to make things happen. This is how we want to be. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. They shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. The Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. It's a deliberate contrast. You have two disciples who try to take advantage of their firstness, and then you have two blind men who embrace their lastness. The two guys who try to exploit their firstness get rebuked by Jesus, even though they're in the inner circle. These two blind men who spend their whole life begging our outsiders, are brought near to Jesus because they embrace their lastness. They recognize we've got nothing. We're asking for mercy. We're not asking you to give us what we deserve. We're asking you for mercy. James and John are saying, hey, we give us these, do us a favor and give us these seats. In Mark's version of it, it says they go up to him and say, give us whatever we're going to ask. Okay. Bold. These guys go to him and they're, like, they're just calling out, have mercy on us. And what does it say? Jesus is moved with compassion. Every time in the New Testament that Jesus is moved with compassion, he always does something. Compassion is not pity. It's not bless your heart. It's not feeling sorry. It's, it, it's this, mo- this deep feeling that moves us to address the need. When Jesus is moved to compassion, that's good for whoever's around him because it means he's going to address their need. And he does here. And he says, what do you want? You ask me for mercy. You've moved me to compassion because you've approached me the right way. You've approached me from this posture of dependence, from this posture of humility. As a child, you've recognized your last. You realize I hired you at 5 o'clock, and anything you get from me is going to be grace. You don't deserve anything, and you recognize that. And because you recognize that, I'm going to give you whatever you want. So what do you want? We want to see. Done. We're about to take communion and as we do, this, I want you putting yourself here as these two blind men. We don't want to approach him as James and John, who wind up being wonderful, by the way, but we don't want to, in this section, we don't want to approach them like that. We don't want to try to manipulate him. Hey, let me send my mom and maybe you'll feel... They say his, their mom might have been Jesus' aunt. and It's dirty pool. Here, let me send this lady to you to ask you for what I want. We're not doing any of that. We're not relying on our firstness this morning. We want to embrace our lastness. We want to recognize, like these two blind men, all we deserve is nothing. We're going to ask for mercy, and we're going to ask for grace. And when you approach him that way, what it's going to do is move him to compassion. And he'll act on your behalf. And then what we want to say after that is, if he says to us, we, we want to be able to say, hey, this is what I want. Some of us, we don't even know what we want. If I were to ask you if Jesus were to stand right here and say, I'll give you whatever you want, half of us would be like, I don't, I don't. we don't know. We're not even aware. We're so used to doing things on our own. We're so used to, being, to living life independent of him, making our own way, taking care of our own needs, that if the God of the universe showed up and said, I'll give you whatever you want, we're fumbling and bumbling and stumbling because we don't have anything. Because I take care of myself. And we want to approach him this morning as children who recognize our need for him, who recognize dependence upon him. I'm last. I was hired at 5 o'clock, and anything good you give me is grace. And if you're going to ask, this is what I want you to do for me. Not because I'm a great guy, but because you've been moved by compassion. We can, y'all can stand, and we'll pray. Your help.